You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, recording from Washington, D.C. And I'm your co-host, Katie Putz, recording this time from Maine. Yeah, well, uh, good to have you uh, back, Katie, for our first discussion in 2022. Um, I think our listeners probably won't be too surprised uh, to hear that we will be devoting this episode uh, to the concerning and tragic events uh, in Kazakhstan, uh, which kicked off on just the day after New Year's Day. Um, I won't be talking too much because Katie is the expert on Central Asia and Kazakhstan, but I certainly have a lot of questions about the origins of the unrest in Kazakhstan, uh, the response by the government, uh, the involvement of the CSTO, um, the geopolitical ramifications for Central Asia. Uh, so there's a lot to cover here, Katie. But uh, just to you know, give our listeners a little bit of, the, um, of a sense of the severity, uh, we've had more than a week now of unrest. Uh, more than 160 people have been killed. Uh, more than 8,000 detained. Those numbers may still be a little fuzzy, of course, and, and things are rapidly changing as we record this. Um, and I, I will just note that we are recording this on Monday, January 10th, as events are still quickly changing. Um, but Katie, before uh, before we kick off a discussion on the broader um, the state of play now and the consequences, can you just explain to us, uh, I mean, what what was the origin of this and, uh, and, and what was the primary cause, in your view, uh, of the original uh, unrest in Kazakhstan? So the um, what's happening now really started. So the proximate uh, events are a series of protests in Western Kazakhstan on January 2nd. Now, the root of those protests was an increase in gas prices and the kind of gas that's used in, in cars in that, that section of Kazakhstan uh, more than doubled um, between New Year's Day and the second day of January. Uh, and so in response to really that that massive leap in prices, uh, people came out to the streets in Western Kazakhstan. And then in the sort of ensuing two days, protests emerged in pretty much every major city in Kazakhstan, um, initially in solidarity with the, the protesters in the Western region of Kazakhstan. And maybe for our listeners who might be a little less familiar with Kazakhstan, uh, the Kazakh government has made a lot of money on oil and gas extraction. It's the, it's the major industry in the country. And most of that work is done in Western Kazakhstan. But a lot of the communities in Western Kazakhstan have not seen significant development. And so there's a disconnect between the, you know, wealth of the elites in Kazakhstan and the oil companies and then what oil workers experience. Uh, I think it's worth mentioning that Western Kazakhstan uh, is also where uh, a decade ago in 2011, mm -hmm. there was uh, a, a it was a, a, a long running oil strike. It was seven months in. And on Independence Day in 2011, um, the authorities cracked down on that protest. That was the last sort of time that Kazakh authorities fired on protesters. And so the fact that this started in Western Kazakhstan is not surprising. Uh, events quickly unfolded from there. And we'll, we'll get more into that. Um, most of the attention right now has been on Almaty, which uh, until 1997 was the cap Kazakh capital. Um, it is currently the largest city in the country. It's a financial center. Um, it's definitely a, a power center. Uh, but that's where really the protests kind of went off the rails. And, and I say that in a very general sense, because there were, uh, as we like to call them, peaceful protesters, lots of them. And then something happened. Uh, and there are various versions of, of mm -hmm. what happened on the fifth into the sixth. Uh, but resort by the sixth, 
Um, several government buildings in Almaty had been burned. There were burning cars. There was gunfire. And then it's also worth mentioning that throughout this period in Kazakhstan, uh, the government shut off the internet. So right. we still don't have consistent access to people in Almaty, for example. Um, the last I heard, the internet's been on for a couple of hours uh, in the morning Kazakh time, but then is, is off basically by its by the time it's daytime in the West. Um, mm-hmm. And so that really, really complicates getting anything other than the government version of what's happening. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so that's, you know, a good place to actually, I think, reflect, which is the level of visibility we have uh, into events more generally. Uh, you mentioned the uh, Internet crackdown, which is pretty much a tried and tested, I mean, part of the playbook uh, for, um, you know, authoritarian leaders to respond to these kinds of events in their countries uh, around the world. Um, but tell us a little bit more about, I mean, the sources of information uh, for the outside world. Obviously, you know, we have the government's version of events, uh, particularly with the CSTO getting involved and in sort of how they had to come up with a narrative to enable that, which we can get to in a minute. But, uh, but how do we actually know the severity of this? Um, who's been, uh, you know, what's been perpetrated against peaceful protesters and so forth? So there are, um, you know, despite years of, of pressure, there are independent media in Kazakhstan. There have been a number of foreign journalists uh, who have been based in Kazakhstan a long time. Um, not all of them were there when everything broke out. And some of them, um, such as Joanna Lillis, who writes for Eurasianet and The Economist, haven't been allowed back into the country, mm-hmm. um, despite having accreditation and, and residency there mm-hmm. for uh, more than a decade. So what we know that doesn't come from the government necessarily comes in these small windows of time that the internet has been active. And a lot of it has come out um, in connection to Kazakhs who live outside of the country. Uh, the diaspora is obviously um, shocked as the rest of us, but has a very deep emotional connection and so is trying to reach their family. And so once people talk to their people, so a lot of what we have is an- anecdotes and that's what we have right now. Um, mm-hmm. Hopefully we'll get more information. Um, my hope is that they'll start letting journalists back in um, and, and there can be some more reporting on, on what's actually been experienced. But I think if you watch protests pretty much everywhere, there's this period of absolute chaos and understanding. Um, and, and, you know, it's hard to identify who a mob belongs to or what, what it is that they want. Um, and, and, and there are just different levels of what's going on. I think there were peaceful protesters, obviously, um, there's some evidence of, of an elite power struggle, which played out in various ways, uh, including reports of the, the police kind of disappearing in Almaty for a couple of, for part of, part of the night, um, a lot and sort of pulling back from buildings, kind of allowing people to ransack them. And so people will construct narratives around these disparate anecdotes. Um, and I can certainly do that, but I want to sort of hedge everything mm-hmm. with, you know, we don't, we don't really know yet. Yeah. I mean, you know, on the elite power struggle, I think if I, if I'm not mistaken, Katie, I think the last time you and I had a discussion on this podcast about Kazakhstan in some detail was when uh, Nazarbayev, um, you know, sort of stepped down, became leader for life. Tokayev took over. And, and at least some of what I've been reading is that um, opportunistically or perhaps in a premeditated way, the two factions, um, to simplify, Tokayev faction and, and Nazarbayev faction, have been sort of duking it out behind the scenes. Uh, what can you say about that? So that that's um, definitely one aspect that certainly um, I think has some merits to it, uh, in in the sense that 
one of the things that Tokayev did uh, amidst the protests was he uh, dismissed the entire government, which is not actually that big of a move in Kazakhstan, sort of dismissing the the prime minister and, and the ministers. And this happens every time there's something dramatic. But he also said Nazarbayev is not in charge of the National Security Committee anymore. And that was a position that when Nazarbayev resigned in 2019, he was supposed to hold on to for life. So replacing him and in that position was significant. And that was quickly followed up by the initially the firing of the security chief, uh, the successor organization to the KGB in Kazakhstan, um, which is a, you know, a combination security intelligence uh, domestic um, organization that has very nefarious undertones. And uh, a guy named Karim Masimov had been leading that since 2016. He had previously been prime minister of Kazakhstan. He was fired and then the next day arrested on treason charges, but that wasn't reported publicly until the 8th. So there were a couple of days where, and you can start to kind of piece together a narrative that, you know, there were these organic protests separately. And then under that in Almaty, where a lot of businesses are owned by Nazarbayev Associates, there's a lot of talk about how much power and control the Nazarbayev family and the sort of network of brothers-in-law and, and, and sort of the family network has. And then you have the firing and arrest of the security chief. Um, these things point to there being some kind of internal struggle. Uh, and how, how and why, you know, we're not really, we don't know yet. Um, but I think as we, as we move forward in time, some of the things to look out for is, right. you know, what happens to the businesses that Nazarbayev's family are connected to in Almaty? Are these, are there different people put in charge of, of security agencies that are not as connected to Nazarbayev? Um, and it's also worth noting that Tokayev has not made any negative public statements about Nazarbayev. So it hasn't been blamed on Nazarbayev, but there's definitely a, a sentiment that there's some kind of conflict mm -hmm. in the elite that played out either within or under the umbrella of this other sort of chaotic moment. Right. So it's sort of, you know, I guess I guess it's something we'll get clarity on down the line. It could be a part of just broader power consolidation as Kazakhstan sort of fully settles into the post Nazarbayev yeah. era. And 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 I think it's important to to note that, you know, Nazarbayev was president of Kazakhstan for 30 years. So there's a large network of people who worked for and with him. Um, maybe they didn't like the new guy as much. And and, I, and, and Tokayev has complained over the last three years uh, of sort of unnamed elements within the government that were stymieing his reform efforts. Now, right. how whether we can take those comments at face value is really hard to judge. Uh, but but it is worth saying that, you know, whenever there's a change in power in an autocratic state, there are losers. Uh, and if you were not on the winner side, then then, you know, it's entirely possible that um, mm -hmm. people took advantage of, of what was a chaotic situation uh, on top of just sort of the normal chaos of protests. Um, so, you know, taking a look at the neighborhood and sort of the external uh, response to this, uh, I think, you know, we'll have to talk about the CSTO's reaction and response because uh, the CSTO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which includes Russia, Armenia, Belarus, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and Kazakhstan, um, on Tokayev's request, uh, decided to intervene um, to stop what was framed as a foreign-supported protest movement in the country. Um, and for that matter, um, which the Kazakh government also described as including terrorists. 
Uh, so what did you make of that? I mean, I mean, what what is to be said about the CSTO's role here? How long are they going to stay in Kazakhstan? What are they doing? So the this is the first time that the CSTO has ever deployed. Uh, they have members of the CSTO over the last, you know, two decades have requested intervention by the CSTO. The CSTO has always declined. Uh, this included both Kyrgyz revolutions uh, and most recently the uh, Armenia-Azerbaijan uh, conflict uh, over Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, Armenia requested support. The CSTO declined. Uh, and then most recently within Central Asia, uh, when Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan were having a flare up in, in their conflict over their mutual border, um, and there were, you know, the Kyrgyz military and the Tajik military were firing at each other over border towns, the CSTO also said not getting involved. And so the fact that the CSTO did send, I think the number is around 4,000, mm-hmm. um, quote unquote, peacekeepers, because that's the word that they use. We, you know, people can argue over the semantics of that, but that's the word that they use. Um, the fact that they actually deployed to Kazakhstan for this is remarkable. Um, and I think does signal a statement, at least on the part of the CSTO, which is a Russian-led organization. And Russia holds sort of inordinate power within that organization. I th- and that's visible in the numbers. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the Russian troop contingent is like 3,000 uh, and the other countries each are providing between 100 and 200. So it's, it's you know, this is, I think, and can be read in part as a statement on, on the part of Russia that, you know, at any that it will get involved, you know, if there's a revolution. Um, and, and this is also reflected in the Russian government, Vladimir Putin in his his statement uh, at the extraordinary session of the CSTO today on, on the 10th, you know, used the phrase color revolution. It's not something the Kazakh government has called this, but it is something that's familiar to to people in, in the post-Soviet space um, as, as a big, scary thing uh, and, 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 a, and a pretext for involvement. And so the concern, I think, on the part of many in Central Asia is that now this kind of gives license to the CSTO to get involved when Russia decides that it should. Right. Um, And, and, you know, and I think it is worth, I'm just going to reflect for a second on the fact that the Kyrgyz government um, experienced some protests against sending CS, uh, sending a contingent to join the CSTO mission, put it before the parliament, the parliament voted in favor. So they did. So they are, they did send, I think, 200, 150 um, troops. And the reading of that by a lot of Kyrgyz analysts was the Kyrgyz president who himself came to power on the back of protests, kind of buying himself some insurance that if he faces some kind of internal threat, that now maybe the CSTO will owe him. And they will actually come and support him in a way they didn't support previous Kyrgyz leaders who who reached out for that support. Um, yeah. So I think it cha- it certainly changes the dynamic uh, of of whether Russia would get involved in these states. Right. Um, and this the CSTO is the vehicle, but it, it's it's Russian involvement. Yeah. No. I mean, the precedent setting effect here, I think, is quite interesting because you know this is the first time that they've done this, so I think this is going to set the benchmark for future CSTO. Uh, involvement in the internal affairs, right? I mean, uh, we could even think back to events in Belarus not that long ago. Mm-hmm. And so how this affects the CSTO's role, uh, I guess, among its member states, especially is something that I find to be quite interesting. And then, you know, just um, uh, apart from apart from the CSTO response, which is certainly the most significant external response to events in Kazakhstan so far, 
Um, what are the other, um, you know, what are the other uh, reactions from around the world uh, so far uh, to events in Kazakhstan? So the the Western reaction has been, I would say, extremely muted. Um, mm-hmm. Just general statements of, you know, we want peace and stability and, um, you know, everything to kind of go back to where it was. Um, the regional reactions have also been mm-hmm. kind of muted. Uh, the Kazakh government uh, is is framing this as a foreign, uh, a foreign trained terrorist sleeper cell force. Um, it 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 reads like a bad global war on terror movie plot. I'll be honest. Um, that, but within that, they're sort of de facto accusing the neighbors of sending terrorists to their own country. Um, one particularly egregious example of this is a Kyrgyz guy was um, shown on Kazakh state television. He looked pretty roughed up, had a black guy confessing to having taken $200 to fly to Almaty to take part in protests. And this is a pretty standard like forced confession of a paid protester. Uh, except that he was recognized by Kyrgyz as a fairly famous, in Kyrgyzstan at least, musician. He's a jazz pianist who often goes to Almaty to play shows. And he was released today after state media then tried to say like, that's not that guy, it's it's not Vikram, it's this other guy. And then they let him go because it was clear he was not who they were accusing him of being. But if that happens in one case, mm-hmm. we have to think about these other 8,000 people who have been arrested how much does the state actually know about their individual involvement? And then that kind of becomes a rabbit hole of, can you trust any of this? Um, and so I, the Kyrgyz government in this p- specific case has, you know, walked a fine line, has said, you know, obviously we want our, our citizens released, but they haven't necessarily been overly critical of the Kazakh government. We haven't heard critical comments mm-hmm. from the rest of Central Asia either. Um, so I, I have to think that Uzbekistan feels pretty happy that it's not in the CSTO anymore. Yeah. Um, because while the CSTO forces in Kazakhstan currently are, from what I know, guarding like infrastructure, they're not pursuing any, they're not really engaged in extremely active missions or, or anything like that, though we don't really know. Um, I, I think one can think through the the domino effect of say a tajik soldier got shot in almaty what's the response in tajikistan to that and that's that's one of those um what ifs that hopefully don't play out but but that's the you know when you intervene in another country and there's a civil conflict ongoing those are the things that could happen yeah. um i, I, I realize... do want to yeah go ahead i do want to just say that it seems that things have settled down. Um, the last time I heard from folks in Almaty, there's less there's less sounds of shooting in the street and things like that. The government says that they have a handle on the situation, um, but we don't quite know what happens next. Yeah, I mean, you know, before we get to what you'll be looking for in the coming days, um, one question that comes to my mind is: uh, Has the Shanghai Cooperation Organization had any statement on this? I mean, I know they they claim not to interfere in the internal affairs of their members, but you know, given given that the narrative here is terrorism, which is something that the SCA yeah. does focus on, I've been very so curious. the I don't remember exactly what the statement was, but the Chinese authorities have commented on this. I think they also used the color revolution rhetoric, so they're supportive of the mm-hmm. CSTO intervention, um, but. One has to think that Beijing didn't want to necessarily get involved physically, um, though they certainly are lending moral support um, to to the the government's narrative that, that this is a, a terrorist incident 
and um and that's that's all she wrote mm -hmm. and so you know looking forward katie obviously a lot a lot is still in flux a lot of uncertainty still around this so you know we're now on january 10th coming weeks and days what are you going to be watching for in kazakhstan particularly in terms of signs that things are stabilizing so the the next big thing to look for is the appointment of the new government so we will see um if there are new faces maybe uh, or if there's um Previous government shuffles have always kind of the old government goes away and then it kind of comes back in a slightly readjusted, but the same set of faces. We'll see what the new government looks like. And I think that will help possibly explain where the elite chips have fallen. Um, similarly, I think in Almaty, um, there will be Kazakh journalists who are looking for um, major businesses and in business people who are related to the Nazarbayevs if, if they, you know, wasn't there, like which shops got burned? I think somebody's going to have to look through like what stores got burned and is there any kind of systematic choosing of them or was it actually random violence? Um, so figuring out who, who, who comes out burned and who comes out not, I think is worth, worth looking for. Mm -hmm. I think the third thing would be the CSTO deployment. The Kazakh authorities say it's only going to be there a week. Uh, the Russian authorities have said something along the lines of until we don't need to be there anymore. So there's a gap between those two. Um, I, I mean, I imagine it will be closer to that week because I think the president precedent is set. Um, there doesn't seem to be a need for some kind of long-term occupation and 4,000 soldiers for a country, the physical size of Kazakhstan is really not a lot. Um, you know, even if you throw them all into Almaty, Almaty is a city of like 1.8 million people. So, you know, it's a drop in the bucket um, in terms of an actual security presence. But right. watching when that deployment ends or doesn't end, I think will be. And the last thing, where Nazarbayev is. So he has not appeared publicly since, I think, late December. So it's unclear. He, uh, a Nazarbayev spokesperson said that he's in the capital and he, you know, Everybody should rally around Tokayev, but he himself has not appeared and has not spoken. Um, so watching where the Nazarbayevs end up is is important. They have a lot of really nice houses in London and Geneva, so they can leave the country if they want to, I guess. And the uh, and the state of emergency is supposed to expire on the nineteenth. Yes. So okay. well, we shall see if I imagine. I imagine that will actually end on the nineteenth as planned, unless there's further unrest, um, and then I think overarching kind of the last comment I want to say that I'm watching is how the government actually or does not attempt to address the concerns that started all of this. Um, the government has said we we've addressed the protesters concerned. We put the cap back on gas prices. It's done like all, all the other chaos is because of terrorists. There's no legitimate con concerns anymore. But that's not really that's not reality. Um, Kazakhs are frustrated with inequality, with income inequality in particular in Kazakhstan. They're frustrated with the same kinds of things people around the world are frustrated with. Uh, the pandemic has not been nice to the Kazakh economy, just like it's not been nice to most economies. And so how the government deals with the socioeconomic issues that are at the root of actual public grievance is the most important thing, because if that's not settled, then nothing will be settled. All right. Well, Katie, thanks a lot for um, sharing these tremendous insights. I mean, I certainly learned a lot and uh, we'll keep a close eye on this. Uh, certainly, you know, kicking off 2022 with a podcast on Central Asia was not what I expected. Um, but, 
you know, it's definitely not in my plan either, but you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, thanks for, thanks for, uh, taking some time away from your, um, from your break in Maine to uh, talk through these events. Um, uh, we'll look forward to, uh, the next episode with you in, uh, when you're back in DC. So thanks a lot. Absolutely. I'll talk to you soon.